Hello and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. Today is going to be the rootinest, tootinest episode you ever did here because we're talking about them evil carbs. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing jazz like this is like finger, fire fingers, jazz fingers. I don't know what this is. But, um, you know, all jokes aside, I think that the amount of carbs a person consumes is an individual decision, an individual journey. I do understand that some people just do a bit better when they're more mindful of carbs or they don't overdo it on carbs. And then some people do just fine with carbs. You know, there there's going to be some spectrum of, of human nutrition, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. However, I think what we would like to talk to uh, – today is the group of people who are currently low or lowish carb, and they would really, really like to increase their carbs, or they see the medical necessity or the merit behind increasing their carbs, but they're feeling stuck because every time they try to eat carbs, things just like blow up in their face and they don't <laughs> feel good, right? Yeah. So if you're low carb and you're happy to be there, you do you, man. This episode's probably not for you. If you're kind of low carb and you want to increase your carbs, but you don't know how you feel stuck, then this one's for you. And I would add one more caveat too. Okay. If you're just not feeling great at your current intake and you are a little bit more on the low carb end, um, I would keep an open mind because you might be someone that might do better high carb. So like if you're sort of like, oh, I feel like this is a good point, but you're still not where you want to be, you might That's still want to manipulate macros and see if you feel better. I mean, I will say that, you know, for women in particular, but men as well, there typically is a carb point that they feel best eating. Um, and most of the time, it's, it's a it's a macronutrient that I see a lot of people eating low. Um, lower than probably is optimal for them. And um, a lot of the SIBO diets might be a little bit more naturally low carb. So that's something to think about too, especially in comparison to maybe what you were eating before going on some of these diets. So there's a lot of things to maybe consider when it comes to your carb intake. Um, I think also, sorry if, if I interrupted you, but no, go ahead. I think also how you are arriving at your carb intake decision is important, right? Like yeah. if you if you arrive on low carb because you truly honestly know that it makes your body feel good and that's what's right for you, that's cool, man. But I think that a lot of people arrive at low carb because they hear the dogma and the BS in the internet they get sucked into, you know, the Dr. Berg videos, the keto videos, the carnivore videos, the whatever. And they get this, this message drilled into their head constantly that carbs are bad, carbs are evil. Oh, my God, why would you eat a carb? You're such a piece of shit human being if you eat carbs. Oh, my God, don't you know, they're poisoning you. Like, if you're making the decision to be a bit lower carb, out of a place of lack or there's something wrong with me there's something wrong with carbs they're intrinsically bad i'm intrinsically bad i'm intrinsically broken oh my god they're, they're evil that i take big issue with and i would say that's very worthy of examining and challenging and seeing like well how do you feel when you eat a little bit more carbohydrate versus again mm -hmm. like the person who 
is approaching it more from a place of self-love and self-compassion and really listening to their body and trying to arrive at the decision that is best for them without necessarily like soaking in all of the diet dogma and BS that's out there. Mm. So, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it might be wise to, if you're not sure about your carb intake, it might be interesting just to establish where your baseline is. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you have some degree of of health issues (laughs) going on and the need for carbs versus like your diet being all set with carbs might be something to just explore a little bit in general. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple things to point out of why carb intake might be important for certain individuals. I mean, when it comes to our clients, I think for women in particular, they they tend to be way more sensitive to carb intake compared to men. Now, I still think some men can be very sensitive to carb intake as well, but it seems like um, just from how delicate our hormonal cascade is from a woman from a woman's point of view, there tends to be a lot of just disarray that might come up if your carb if your carb intake dips lower than what your body wants it to be it can sort of send hormones into this weird disarray that can be hard to untangle well and it makes sense right like if you think about how our species grew up so to speak for all these millennia if you you know i'm picturing like if you were a hunter-gatherer society and you had a pretty balanced diet carbs protein fat on a day-to-day But let's say that another tribe came in and like raided your village and you had to flee. And Mm -hmm. then you were like on the run for a month and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't harvest your wheat and your root vegetables and your whatever. Like you had to just eat the wild game that you were catching and maybe some berries. Like I think that women's bodies are really sensitive to perceived starvation states Mm -hmm. and probably one of the perceived starvation states arises out of carb deficiency. Because again, like carbs, historically for us have been kind of, I think, an indicator of of stability and safety in our village or our geographical Mm. location. You know, you plant the carrots and then you can't harvest them for months. You plant the wheat and the corn and the whatever, and you can't harvest it for months versus you could probably always go out and kill a buffalo. Mm. Yeah, I want it. It reminds me of, you know, when it comes to balancing even sex hormones and your cycles and being fertile, your body really needs an indicator that you have enough short term fuel to have a baby, whether that's your goal or not. That's what the body is, is constantly trying to figure out. Do I have the metabolic reserves to have a baby? And so it looks at leptin. So it sort of looks at um, fat stores, essentially, like, do you have enough fat stored in your long term reserves to have a baby? And then it also looks at insulin. So it says, do you have enough insulin? Because this is like a short term, this is your short term energy stores, like, are you getting regular insulin, insulin, um, a robust insulin response, which sort of indicates to your body, okay, you have enough short term fuel right now to have a baby. So both of those things, I think, are really important um, signals for the body to say you 
can have a baby and a lot of like it's in particular insulin um insulin response is going to be um very sensitive to carbs so it's going to increase when you're eating carbs so again a lot of people a lot of women in particular if your cycles are a little bit wonky or you might have amenorrhea or anything like that <clears throat> might be someone that would should increase carbs um I think, again, thyroid hormones, you need carbs to convert them to the active form. So some people can get in a weird low T3 type state if they're low carb. That's, I think, a big thing that happened to me. I had I had below the reference range free T3, so super low. Oof. I don't see that super often, honestly, with my clients. But yeah, no, I've seen it a handful of times, but it's not super common to be right. below the LabCorp reference range. Right. That's yikes. So, yeah, I think I was like 1.9 um, before I was 2.0. I mean, it was multiple times kind of below the the reference range or right on the border. Um, pretty consistently when I was borderline low carb. Uh, and again, everyone's going to be a little different in exactly what their body likes from a carb intake standpoint, which is important to note. I mean, we can give usually I'll give baseline things and say, let's get you to this point and then sort of play around a little bit. But, you know, you can get thyroid abnormalities, which can affect motility and just overall function in so many ways. I think cortisol, it can definitely get dysregulated for certain women if they get a little bit too low carb because cortisol is almost like your body's backup plan if you don't eat enough carbs to maintain blood sugar balance. Um, and then I think there's one too, you know, I was reading, I was just recently the other day reading a hack your gut article, I had sent it to someone and I hadn't read it in a while. And um, this is Dave Mayo, who runs the hack your gut site. So he wrote an article and he was talking about how carbs are actually really important in motility. Because when you make acetylcholine, um, you need glucose to make acetyl-CoA, which is a part of acetylcholine. So um, acetylcholine is essentially like a neurotransmitter that is super important in stimulating motility and muscle contraction. Um, so it like allows the nervous system to communicate with each, with, it allows the neurons to communicate um, in a way that stimulates muscle contraction in the gut and motility. And so to make acetylcholine, you need acetyl-CoA, you need choline, um, but it seems like that, that if you could, if you dip a little bit low in carbs, um, I think again, you typically are going to dip a little bit low in fiber, which could really affect motility. You could dip thyroid hormones, which could affect motility poorly. But I also just think inherently it could affect acetylcholine production, um, which could also affect motility. So, I mean, I, I, there are definitely a lot of ramifications gut specifically with carbs, I, and, and there's so much misinformation. I feel like people well, are really these days, right? People are so keto and carnivore are the hip end thing, right? If we were recording this podcast back in the mid nineties, everything would be skewed towards vegan, this vegan, that, mm -hmm. you know, you have to be super, super low fat. So right. in this day and age in particular, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a really high amount of misinformation and just really dogmatic stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff that has a little nugget of truth to it, mm. but it's so dogmatic and black and white. 
and like laced with venom that it's just not usable, you know, like just so much judgment. So yeah, yeah, I, I think that I'm glad that you brought up the thyroid hormone piece in particular, because I have seen that, especially with women and bless their hearts. The functional medicine community will tell you all day, every day, it's a conversion issue. It's a liver issue. There's something wrong right. with your liver. Ah. <laughs> and, and it's like, I've gone down that, that conversation with people before with either borderline or blatantly low T3. And, you know, I've given them the selenium and I've given them the liver support and then we recheck and it doesn't do a damn thing. Yeah. I've tried it numerous times, but you know, when I started hanging out with this super cool dietitian friend of mine Woo! and talked about this stuff and I learned about the car I don't know what I was doing, like a little dancey dance with my hands. I loved it. Um, I loved every moment. But, you know, I started talking more about the carbs and that seems to be the thing that resurrects your T3 right. pretty consistently. Yeah, I mean, I would say more often than not, if someone doesn't have an autoimmune component and I'm seeing their free T3 low, I would first and foremost, assess their carbs and overall nutrition. I think, again, like some of these other strategies, like you said, assessing micronutrient needs um, and that kind of thing and, and liver stuff certainly could be at play. But yeah, I agree. Not as commonly as you would think. Yeah, not as common as, as you would think. But again, being slightly low carb in the in the gut health space is so super common. Um, and again, I... I I think sometimes it's this idea that, you know, sugar's bad, so like fruit's bad. And sometimes I think it's like a, a FODMAP thing where they've just cut out a whole bunch of carbs. Um, <clears throat> and I, I will say if you're coming from a little bit of a low carb space, when we're talking about reintroduction, and I hope we gave we gave some context, I feel like, about someone who you know, might want to consider adding carbs in if they're struggling with the issues we had mentioned just previous. But, um, you know, I think a good thing to just acknowledge is that anytime you cut out any food, it's going to take some degree of transition and adaptation for your body to adjust and become tolerant um, of the food you're adding in. Um, so it's very hard from a mindset standpoint at times to continue pushing forward when something feels off or it's causing some symptoms. Um, and that is historically what happens when people add in carbs. I just had a, um, a client in particular uh, who was struggling. They were doing well. We had added some supplements in between the first call and the second call and they were like, oh, these are really helping. And I usually assess nutrition on the second call. And I was saying, I think she might have been closer to around 100 grams of carbs a day. And she's fairly active. So I said, we probably need to be working up closer to like maybe 175 to 200 to 225, like somewhere in that range, considering how active you are. Um, so we did the jump and... She originally was saying, oh, I think I'm, and she had been adding in a, some FODMAPs into and doing well between the first and second call. So then the third call after she had upped carbs a bit and was still upping FODMAPs was saying, I think I'm intolerant to FODMAPs. I'm really having more bloating and stuff lately. 
And I was like, I don't think you would just all of a sudden become intolerant to the FODMAPs you had added in. I think it's a carb thing. I think that your body is transitioning. So she wasn't even thinking it was the carbs. She was thinking it was the FODMAPs. But what we determined was like, hey, I think I think it really is the, the um, carbs that are causing some of the bloating and GI symptoms that you're experiencing. Um, so what we did was I told her just to just be persistent. I wouldn't push like a ton more than you're doing now. I think she was kind of, she jumped maybe, um, we went a little bit slower at that point. I think she might've jumped to like 175 from 100. So we, we were so more almost saying, double. yeah. So we were basically saying, you know, maybe you stick to like 150 to 175 and then we'll sort of assess where you're at from there. Um, and again, now she's tolerating the carbs fine from a gut standpoint. So it took like a good, probably three or four weeks for things to just level out. Um, <clears throat> so that's a really, really common thing is when you are adding carbs in, depending on the degree of, um, of deficiency or need for carbs might also determine how, easily it is to add them in. I mean, if you've been eating 50 grams of carbs a day for two years, it might be a little bit more of a process adding some carbs in and you might need to go more slowly. Um, whereas someone else might be able to, if you've only cut them out for like four months or something and you're, you've still been eating a decent amount, you might be able to add them in more quickly. It just depends. Well, it, it makes sense from not only a physiology perspective, but a microbiome perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you think about it, you have this amazing, awe-inspiring, intricate apparatus set up to metabolize carbs. So your pancreas mm. has to squirt. You have to make salivary amylase first. Yeah. Let's even not get to the pancreas. You need the digestive enzymes in your dang spit first. Then you need to have the proper amount of juices squirted out of your pancreas to digest the carbs and break them down. Then you need to absorb it through the gut. Then you need the proper like insulin and gluc mm. glucagon response. And you need something called GLP-1. Like all of these things are talking to each other. They're influencing each other. And they need to happen at just the right time to orchestrate you know, the gradual rise of the gradual normalizing of your blood sugar after a meal. And then you have to get the carbs into the cell and get them through the Krebs cycle. And, yeah. and there's, there's all of this intricacy that honestly, it, I feel like it would be a waste of time for the a normal everyday person to try to even understand all of these things. I think the yeah. temptation is to like write down the bullet points of all the different steps and then try to improve all the different steps. You know, right. like, oh, okay. Somebody out there is frantically taking notes right now and they're like, okay, salivary amylase and then what was next? And then what was next? All right. But just zooming out and not thinking about how can I like treat each of those steps? Mm. Just thinking this is such a complicated, beautiful system and it I haven't been using it for a while, yeah. or I haven't been using it to this degree for a while. So maybe just giving my body time to acclimate and adjust and like, upregulate the DNA for the synthesis of insulin and upregulate the DNA for the synthesis of the enzymes and mm -hmm. whatnot. Like you need to epigenetically change and adjust to that new environmental stimuli of the carbs, then you get into the microbiome piece of it. And similarly, 
your microbes probably forgot that carbs existed. <laughs> and, and then you go and you throw them two pieces of toast and carb they're party. like, well, they're hearty, but they're also like, whoa. Oh, I, I said a carb party. Oh, oh, okay. Well, but I they mean, are hearty too. They are hearty too. But you <laughs> right. know, like you throw in a couple pieces of toast and then all of a sudden your microbes are having a jamboree. And similarly, we don't always appreciate it's not like you have one microbe that eats broccoli and one microbe that eats carrots and one microbe that eats toast. There's oftentimes these feeding networks and these food webs in the gut called crossfeeding, where it's like, okay, maybe Fecalobacterium presidentiae gobbles up some of the complex carbs, and then that bacteria makes butyrate. Well, then the butyrate goes on to feed another microbe, and then mm. that microbe makes another metabolite, and that metabolite feeds something else. And it's right. this whole giant web that we have no clue about, honestly. Like, we're just finding out about these food webs and these, like, cross-feeding relationships in the gut. But similarly, you can't just drop a bomb of a loaf of bread or, you know, rice or whatever, or sweet potato on your gut, and then magically expect the ecosystem to know exactly what to do to that and have all of the machinery in place to metabolize it. I think it's much kinder to start, you know, sometimes it's even start with a bite or two of the rice or the toast or the oats or the whatever. And mm. then, you know, maybe that's your serving size for a couple of days. And then a few days later, then you can bump it up to like four bites of toast or oats or whatever it might be. And you gradually introduce this so that your body and your microbiome have the ability to adapt and get used to the idea of metabolizing it again. Yeah, I mean, the body was smart to downregulate those things when you weren't eating carbs. Like the body is smart doing things in a way that's very efficient based on the input that you're putting into your body. So it, yeah. it, it's so interesting. And typically how I've done it, <clears throat> if someone, because some people can jump and introduce carbs, no problem. So like there are people too. So if you haven't eaten carbs in a while, I wouldn't necessarily assume this is gonna be just this process, but sometimes it can be a little bit um, more challenging for uh, one person compared to another. And again, like I said, I, it might be how long have you been low carb? Um, uh, that kind how of thing. How low have you right, been? How low carb? Yeah. So there's different factors like that. If someone's been lower carb for a while, what I might do, similar to what you're talking about, which is probably more um, laid back, where it's like, oh, you take, you just increase little bites of food. Sometimes I'll, I'll, when I'm working with someone and saying, let's maybe increase carbs by 10 to 20 grams a week until we get you to where you need to go. And usually I'll give ideas of what that would look like. So would that look like adding in, you know, a fruit, you know, an extra fruit a day or like half a slice of bread or whatever it turns out to be or a certain cup of quinoa or whatever it is, I'll try to give some guidance on that. But that's, again, like usually what I'll do if someone's been low carb a while. Um, and the pancreatic enzymes and like the insulin stuff is really interesting because, again, I think there's just more bloating that can come on post-carb for a number of reasons because the digestive machinery isn't quite 
adapted to higher carb. They need, need to wake it input, up. Yeah, they need input from that you're going to eat carbs on a regular basis for that to upregulate. I also think, again, the microbiome piece is really important. Um, but that can lead to bloating. It can also lead to, I mean, to store carbs, there's more water retention. So sometimes I'll see, again, I'll definitely see people complaining about bloating and just more symptomatic with adding carbs in initially. And then I'll also hear people complain about weight gain in general. Um, and sometimes people are very freaked out and think, oh my God, I'm gaining all this weight. I gained like, you know, five to 10 pounds in a short period of time. And again, it's not true weight. It's typically water weight. That usually gets better over time, but it does take more water to store carbs, um, which is something to understand. It's really interesting when you look at papers on weight loss where they have people eating the same number of calories, one higher carb, one lower carb and higher fat. And the higher fat groups almost always lose a lot of weight initially, but it's not true weight. It's a lot of water weight. So if you actually look at true weight, a lot of times people that are dieting might do better. And again, there's nuance to this for sure, but <clears throat> might do better on a higher carb well, uh, a higher carb, like a calorie deficient diet to lose weight. Um, but again, it's really interesting. There is some water weight. That's why when people go keto, they they can be like, oh my God, I lost 10 pounds. It's like, no, this you is the lose. best diet ever. Right. You didn't lose 10 pounds. You lost water. If you um, lost 10 pounds of fat in a right. week or two, that would be genuinely concerning. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean... That's just something to keep in mind. Um, again, water retention is something that can increase when you add carbs in and not be like, try not to get super alarmed if you experience that or notice that you're gaining a little bit more weight. Um, and I'm glad I, that you bring this up because I do think what happens is um, the human brain is a pattern recognition machine and mm -hmm. an anticipation machine. So we're looking at the world around us and we're looking at our past experiences and we're trying to make sense of the world and we're trying to predict what will happen in the future. And we build these beliefs about ourselves and the world based off of that. And oftentimes, you know, say somebody does a whole 30 hmm. and they are given this belief with the education, with the whole 30 program that I have nothing against just for the record. But you know, they're they're gifted this new belief system that carbs and grains are bad. And, you know, meat and fat is good and veggies are good. So then they try to reintroduce the carbs, and they get a bit of an uptick in symptoms, maybe they do get some bloating, or they gain a couple of pounds. Well, mm. now, that is an experience that their brain recognizes that now confirms this belief that they have. Like a confirma confirmation yeah, bias. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, it's and the more times that happens, right? Like if you try to reintroduce carbs two times, well, now you have two data points that is yeah. suggesting to you, not proving, but suggesting to you that carbs are bad or your body doesn't like carbs or your body's better low carb. And it's not necessarily the case. I get, again, I think that there's some patience and understanding of the physiology that goes with this. And that's so much harder to do than the black and white dogmatic, this is good, this is bad kind of thinking. It's so much easier to just stick with the template and be like, these are the rules. I don't have to think about it versus 
getting in the mucky stuff like we're doing now. Yeah. And, and, um, it always makes me laugh too, because I think it's very rare for someone to want to go low carb long-term. Usually it is. They're doing a whole 30 or doing some program typically again. I mean, some people definitely do stick to more of a low carb template long-term. Um, but most people are like, Oh, I want to add them back in eventually, but they get caught in the rut, what you're saying, where it's, they try to add it back in and then they, they're saying, Oh, these are just not good for me. And in reality, they just haven't given it enough time to adapt. Um, one other really big point that you alluded to that I want to flesh out too, is the idea that when you don't eat very many carbs, and I see this oftentimes in blood work of people, um, your insulin levels drop. Um, so I've seen a lot of people who are fairly low carb with pretty low insulin. Now, again, insulin gets a horrible rap, but insulin's also, like we mentioned earlier, going to be really important for thyroid conversion. Um, and really important f- for regulating a lot of other hormonal processes. It but, is necessary. Um, you will die quickly without insulin. Right. If it, you want proof, talk to a type 1 diabetic. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think that one thing I see too with carb intro is some people can get a little bit more fatigued. Um or feeling a little foggy, some some blood sugar symptoms um, are fairly common as well, which again, people are saying, well, the carbs make me sleepy, like I can't focus. And, and so that can be another thing that might deter someone from proceeding. But I would say feeling a little more sluggish, feeling a little more tired, um, feeling a little bit more blood sugary, blood sugar instability might be really common for the first couple weeks to or as you're adding carbs back in. Again, it might take a little bit longer for certain people, but having a bit of some of those symptoms could be um, could be interesting. It, it is funny though, too, considering my own case, I my blood sugar was never worse than when I was on pretty low carb. Um, my <laughs> blood sugar <laughs> was horrendous when I was eating probably around 75 grams of carbs. Um, now I eat, I would guess probably around 250 grams of carbs a day, maybe more. And my blood sugar is way better. Um, like again, I can, I can run hypoglycemic now postpartum, but I, my blood sugar was super stable prior to, uh, pregnancy and lactation. But, um, yeah, it's one of those things where, there could be some metabolic changes like with insulin that might take a little bit of time to regulate. Um, so just, just knowing that I also see fatigue, some fogginess, um, blood sugary type symptoms with people that have added carbs back in as well. I think that this harkens back to the idea of just kind of being a good citizen scientist Mm-hmm. Right? Like there is no scientist on planet Earth. I don't care if it's engineering or medical science or nutritional science or space science. I don't care what the field is, but there's no scientist on this planet who will look at a single data point and then make conclusions based on that single data point. Mm-hmm. So rather you see, you know, 
Heck, even when I'm reading research studies, if I see something where they like measured the microbiome changes and they measured something or they looked at the efficacy of a probiotic or a drug, if the study is like 10 people, like 10 data points, I'm generally not super impressed mm. versus when you start seeing, like I saw a paper recently um, and it was basically um, like social networks and mortality and longevity. And they said having strong, healthy social relationships is equally important as, as whether or not you are obese or whether mm. or not you're a smoker. Right. It's wild. So you could theoretically be an obese smoker, but have great relationships and, and have this great vast social network. And you might be at an equal risk of dying compared to a person who's a skinny non-smoker who's hauled up in their house being a recluse. Right. That's just, but why I share this is that particular paper looked at a bunch of different studies and it was 308,000 people. Oh my that gosh. they gathered the data from, which is bonkers. So, you know, just if you think about it as a scientist, you look at something with 10 data points and you're like, oh, okay, like maybe, but I'm not super impressed. You look at something with 308,000 data points and you're like, all right, now we're onto something. This feels more, more like the truth. So similarly, if you try to eat carbs for like a day or two or three or 10, and it doesn't go stupendously... I don't know if it's if it's clear to say that that's intrinsically like bad and evil for you. I think that you need to play with it a little bit and just understand that it takes your machinery time to adjust to that. Now, I will say, because I know there's going to be naysayers in the comments here, um, there's a difference between what we're talking about. And also like this, would you agree with this, Amy, that you'll have people try carbs in different formats and they'll kind of run into the same issue. Like it doesn't matter if it's a sweet potato or a white potato or rice or bread or oats. And they're just like, Oh, it's all the carbs. This conversation is different compared to like, every time I try to eat tomatoes, my arthritis flares up. Like that's a little bit clearer that it really is that single food contributing to that single symptom. And like, for me, I know enough about my body that being a celiac that I know when I get glutenated, it is the gluten that's doing this to me. Right. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you like try to eat the gluten for a month straight and see if your celiac symptoms are better. Like that's just no. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but I think um, I just wanted to throw that out there because there is a bit of a difference between like a whole food group, a whole food category. Yeah, like a whole macronutrient group <clears throat> right. that people are demonizing and making these wild assumptions about based on possibly incomplete faulty data versus again, like me and gluten. Well, and in a to flip the scenario on its head, you know, all the keto groups say, say oh, you, you, you're going to have the keto flu or whatever when you start keto because your but body's adapting. But it's okay, adapting. you push through that. Right, your body's adapting to the low carb, and it's like, well, if your body, if your body's going to adapt to low carb and get you into this keto flu, why can't you see the other side of the spectrum where your body has to, has to adapt to the carbs again? Can we just? Um, what like, was that? 
That was a bike a drop. A pretend mic drop. Yeah, was it, it was. I mean, it was the mic? remote for my treadmill, but okay, <laughs> that was such a mic drop moment. You're yeah. right. These damn hypocrites. That yeah, they tell I mean, again, you. it's not. It's not hypocrite. And, and again, like we've, it's not we have scenarios. Hypocritical, but it is hypocritical. We have scenarios like that all the time, though, because again, even with, we, I know we've talked about you know, the need f- people take herbals and are saying, oh my God, I I can push through and feel terrible on an herbal, but like pushing through maybe with some transitory symptoms on adding in carbs might seem crazy. But I, th- I think, I think it's just because there's lack of awareness around maybe some of these issues that can come up so they can feel really scary. I mean, that's the thing, like stuff can feel, feel uncomfortable or scary and make you think different things like it might feel like you don't tolerate carbs and that can be a scary or uncomfortable feeling um but the key word is feeling like there is we can sometimes have emotional reasoning where we feel something's true but it's not um and again i i think that most of the time people tolerate carbs just fine it's just a matter of building tolerance finding what amount tends to do well with them i would say for people that might need even more carbs are the people that are really active so if you are really active typically i think that you're going to need even more carbs than the average bear as well we're going to get some keto athlete in the comments who's oh, like for sure. i do marathons oh for sure it, yeah 100 percent. just it's <clears throat> not to say that you can't perform at a high no. level while doing these other diets, you know, you hear these all the time, right? Like, this dude is a vegan and has been Mm. vegan for 32 years. And he's like the world weightlifting champion. And he's got muscles on top of muscles. Like, there's always going to be examples of human bodies prevailing under the most bizarre circumstances. There's always going to be exceptions to like, maybe general rules. Yeah, I, 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 um, I mean, I just work, I'm working with a client or we just re reunited recently. Um, I worked with her before baby. Um, and it's really interesting. So she, I think had insulin resistance for a while. Um, so she was, her A1C was more in the pre-diabetes range. Um, she was doing continuous glucose monitor, um, and she was really active. So again, she's like this really active. She might be more, she, she I think is more around 60 or so years old. Um, but she was running and active. She has clear reactions to starches um, compared to fruit, which again, like can also be something that I see at times too. Um, some people don't do as well with from a blood sugar standpoint with starchy carbs versus like simple sugar carbs like from fruits. Um, uh, but she was really interesting. And again, it shows you that there's nuance. Like this is not typical at all for what I see, but you know, she was fairly active. She was eating. we found that probably her best carb point for her was between maybe 130 and 150 grams a day. Um, and that would be probably lower than most people I would recommend with her level of activity, but with her propensity towards insulin resistance and, um, 
just seeing how our body reacts to, from a blood sugar standpoint, to carbs, we did have some nuance around her strategies and found a good carb point where she feels pretty good. Um, and, and her gut symptoms are under control. The craziest thing about her case is the biggest symptom she feels when her blood sugar is imbalanced is her reflux and her upper GI symptoms really go crazy. Um, so they really rev up. So that's her main indicator that maybe her, her blood sugar isn't super well managed, which is atypical, I think. Um, but she, again, is someone where we needed a little bit of a nuanced approach and we found a carb point that might be a little lower than I typically recommend for someone that's active. Um, but again, sometimes there are these exceptions to the rule. So I'm not oblivious of them, but I would say again, 90 to 95% of people, um, that I work with usually do pretty well with above 150 grams of carbs and then to what degree they do better um, or like to what degree they need more than that or maybe less than that might just depend on the person. But again, typically I would say more than that is like 90% of my clients need more than 150 grams a day as a general, general rule of thumb. But there is a lot of nuance that goes into maybe experimenting with carbs. So some people might need well beyond that, especially if they're a dude that's super active. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it does take a little bit of nuance and, um, and playing just around with it. it. Just, yeah. yeah. Experimenting. That's, I think one of the recurring themes of our podcast is don't be afraid to experiment. Yeah. And if you have, um, like a belief or a mindset thing pop up often, that's probably worth examining. So again, like, if you're a person who finds yourself either labeling foods as good or bad, or being very curious if a food mm -hmm. is good or bad, right? right? Like you're researching and, oh, the broccoli has goitrogens, are those really bad? Right. If, you know, that's worth examining. Um, but yeah, I think just don't be afraid to experiment and, and know that your body changes. Right, like right. you've been going through this with pregnancy and lactation as of late. Mm. You're yeah. the <laughs> the, Ugh, num the amount of carbohydrate that you need, or the amount of fat or protein you need, is going to wax and wane and change throughout your lifetime. So maybe when you were cycling, you need a certain amount versus mm. when you're pregnant, versus when you're breastfeeding, versus when you're postmenopausal. Right. right, like there's there's going to be shifts. And honestly, I see this sometimes even with my daughter, she's not menopausal, just for the record. Um, but we'll go through phases with her, where she's all about the carbs. Like everything is like, I want toast, I want, you know, grits, oatmeal, rice mm. until it's squirting out her ears. And then she kind of cools it. And then she, we jokingly call her the paleo kid when she enters like a meat phase and she just, she like wants all the meat and she won't really touch the carbs as much. And she just came out of a big banana phase where she was eating like two bananas every single day and they had to be cold. If they were room temperature, she didn't want them, but she wanted a cold banana like twice a day. And she's just coming out of the banana phase. But I think you know, in my mind, at least I have no scientific proof of this. But in my mind, 
It's like, okay, when she's craving that thing, she probably needs more of the thing, right? When she's in her paleo kid mode, maybe she's putting on more muscle. When Mm. she's in her carbohydrate frenzy mode, maybe she's in a growth spurt and she just needs a lot of quick energy, or maybe she's been more active in PE at school. Like, I'm not going to question it. I'm going to let her eat kind of intuitively. I mean, I'm always encouraging her to eat some veggies and, and eat relatively healthy but you know what I mean like I just I kind of yeah. let her trust her body's intuition at the it's, end of the day it's really funny you bring this up there is a study I'll have to f- I'll have to find this study in this book that's why I'm looking this way talk it to the microphone dear I, I know I <laughs> so there's a book I think it's in the book is called the Dorito effect I feel yeah, like you that, might have mentioned it before that does sound like it it's rings by Mark Schatzker um Schatzker I believe which is a funny name but anyway Uh oh I can't hear you you were muted oh I was saying we can't hear you at all when you do that okay you turn away from the microphone I know it's Mark Schatzker is the name of the the man who wrote the Dorito effect but he highlights this study that there's no chance could be done now they took like orphan kids maybe 30 or something orphan kids and they put out like 35 foods at every meal for these kids and let themselves select what they wanted. And so, and a lot of these kids had deficiencies like rickets and stuff. They were in very poor health and had very poor nutrition. This was in maybe like the early 1900s. I could be totally butchering butchering this, but I'm pretty sure it was in the early 1900s. And a scientist was having these kids who were deficient in nutrients, self-select nutrition. And essentially what they found was that these kids were insanely healthy after months of doing this because they would self-select the foods that they needed. So like a kid would have rickets, which is a severe vitamin D deficiency. And they, they would find that the kid would drink cod liver oil until the deficiency was gone and then would just stop. So they would notice these weird trends with, with kids. And again, the whole premise of that book is that we have a lot of we have an ability to sense what's in food based on taste. Like we get a, a, we have a sensory experience of this tastes like this and has this nutrient in it. But because there's so much processed foods like Doritos that take, that take um, taste and flavors of different foods and put them in there. So it tastes like maybe a tomato or something, but it's not like it, it tastes like some of these flavors so that we, we have lost our ability to, to crave certain things that yeah, we might need. up that feedback loop that we would normally have. Right. So, but it is a crazy, crazy thing. I think you're right. Um, you know, there might be, if you do feel like you're craving carbs all the time, you might need carbs. It might not be that you are addicted to sugar. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Yep. Oh man, I'm just addicted to Words sugar. Candida. I know. And I'm just like, no, you're not addicted to sugar. I would say more often than not, people are either not eating enough or not eating enough carbs. So their body is just craving calories or craving c- carbs. Um, so again, it it's it's wild. I do think you're correct, especially with kids uh, and adults too. If you are craving something, don't just ignore it or explain it away um with a willy-nilly like it has to be candida i would critically think maybe what what could be happening in that scenario well i have another really good example of this actually from uh my personal life also so 
When I was 11, my mom came home one day from her job at Hippy Dippy Cornell and Hippy Dippy Ithaca. And her friends at work had convinced her to try being a vegan. And she came home and she basically was like, hey, Nick, I'm going to do this. Do you want to do it too? And I was like, yeah, sure. Because like I was super into beet when I was a kid anyway. So I was like, okay. So she and I, uh, I was a vegetarian. I don't think I ever did vegan, if I remember correctly. But she went, my mom went vegan for about three or four months. And then she craved, in her words, she craved blood. <laughs> not just yeah. a burger, not just steak. She's like, I want it as raw as possible. I want it bloody. And that's what I need. And she just like was losing mm. her mind because she craved that blood. Well, it turns mm. out she was wicked iron deficient and mm. her body knew enough to know I'm iron deficient. I need more blood. I need to eat blood. I need like the bloodiest <laughs> burger, the bloodiest steak ever. But how many times can we say blood? I know. Yeah. Can, drink every time you hear blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, like that's a really classic example. Mm. But if you believe that meat is intrinsically bad, intrinsically inflammatory. It's going to give you heart disease. It's going to kill you. Hmm. You're going to fight that tooth and nail. Like you're going to feel that craving, but you're going to say, no, 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 I can't give into this craving because it's bad. And like, Hmm. I can't believe I'm such a shitty person that I would crave a dead animal for my nourishment. But your body's smart enough that it's trying to tell you, yo, man, we need iron ASAP Hmm. or we need B12 ASAP. Thankfully, my mom was either smart enough or the cravings were bad enough that she pretty quickly went ahead and allowed herself to eat meat again. And she immediately felt better. Like mm. within one meal, she was like, Oh, that's exactly what I needed. Mm. Um, yeah. But you know, and you see it on the internet too. You see, Oh, if you crave chocolate, you're deficient in magnesium. And I always like those memes and gifs because I want an excuse to eat as much chocolate as possible. But also, you know, it's is—it's funny because you hear these things on the internet. You see the infographics. If you crave chocolate, you're deficient in magnesium. If you crave this, you're deficient in this. But then with carbs, because carbs are the demonized bad boogeyman Mm -hmm. food right now, you don't hear this. If you're craving carbs, maybe you just freaking need carbs. (laughs) Well, and I, I almost to the other extreme, too, people think it's a good thing at all times that they have no cravings and don't have much hunger, which again, isn't always a good thing. So people who are keto, I hear this all the time too. Oh, I just, all my cravings went away. I'm not hungry and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's not necessarily always a good thing. Um, to me, it can show that your metabolism slowing down, that you're just, your metabolic function. And your motility too. Right. Like we, right. when we feel our innards kind of churning and we feel that pang of hunger like that's partially a motility thing as well yeah but it is something again i hear from from lower carb people it controls my cravings and i'm just like i don't know if that's a good thing i mean it's obviously not a good thing to have intense hunger all the time or something like that or feeling like you're never satiated but i don't think that's the case for most people that can eat a balanced diet with some carbs. Um, you know, there might be swings of hunger, which again, is not a bad thing. Hunger is not a bad thing to me. Again, I see it as a really good sign when people have hunger come back online when it's been gone for a while, Me too. because again, it's showing that their metabolism's kind of kicking back on in a different way. Um, 
And again, maybe motility is, that's a really good point. Motility could be up and running in a much better way. If you're loading up with fat, it could be much slower. And, um, but yeah, it, it's, well, it's fascinating. Can I sure. interrupt you? It, it, yeah. The rabbit hole gets deeper, my friend. Oh God, here we go. So I shared with you recently that I took this really good vagus nerve class. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm in this class, uh, kind of examining our relationship with food and helping clients work through their relationship with food and like disordered eating and food fear and and stuff like that. And um, in both of those classes, I find it interesting. They both brought up this term interoceptive awareness. Mm. And in the vagus nerve class, the lady was was bringing up this idea of interoceptive awareness, which I'm going to define in a second. She brought this up as like a really big way that our vagus nerve functions and our gut brain axis and our, our parasympathetic nervous system functions Mm -hmm. is it, it relies on interoceptive awareness and it helps you with this interoceptive awareness thing. Well, then it came up today in the relationship with food class Mm, as, you know, like, you need interoceptive awareness to be able to eat intuitively, right? Because interoceptive awareness is your awareness of how your body feels. Do I feel hungry? Do I feel full? Do I feel woozy? Do I feel really rock solid? Do I feel an ache or a pain? Do I feel an itch somewhere? That sort of sixth sense of how your body's feeling and the cues are like, Oh, my heart is racing. Oh, I just felt I ovulated. That sort of stuff is interoceptive awareness. And a lot of us are not super skilled at that. Mm. And then there are things like diets, especially more restrictive diets that are directly interfering with interoceptive awareness. And they're kind of bragging about it. Again, right. right? Like, oh, I don't have any cravings. I'm never hungry. Well, that's weird. You should <laughs> right. be hungry sometimes, not right. 24 hours a day. And and you should crave certain things. Like, right. if you smell a delicious pizza and that's not appealing to you and you don't all of a sudden crave pizza, like, you're kind of weird in my book. <laughs> you know? Well, I, and I think that it's, it's um, like they're shutting themselves off to food too. Like, again, it could even just be, yeah. oh, I can't have that. Like it's I'm a, shutting myself off to all the things that taste good. <laughs> so yeah, well, just... it's it's making these yes and no rules and mm-hmm. walling yourself off instead of kind of facing your real demons and examining your relationship with food and how mm-hmm. you nourish yourself. But um, what I found interesting towards the end of this class today she, uh, the, the instructor was giving us this list of these are the things that have been shown like in research to mm. increase interoceptive awareness. And I tell you, Amy, it was like mindfulness, meditation, breath work, Tai Chi, like the, she, there the was zeniest of Zen things. Well, and I, I, I weighed in at the end of class and I said, you know, it's funny, the list you gave us of all the things that improve interoceptive awareness, that is the pretty much the exact list that I give to my patients when we start talking about the vagus nerve and the gut brain axis, because mm. every single one of those things also facilitates vagal activity and vagal tone and facilitates the gut brain axis connection. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's this, it's this bridge between like food, your relationship with food, your relationship with how you nourish yourself, 
you know, the rules that you make up about food, how you use food to feel safe or gain acceptance, like all of this stuff. And then there's this this bridge into vagus nerve motility, etc. And really, that's probably one of the most important things for people who have IBS or SIBO or gut distress. So holy crap, are we making this worse with the diets that we choose? I would <laughs> venture? Yes, oftentimes yeah. we are. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's, it's wild. I think the noise that's out there around what you shouldn't shouldn't be eating makes it harder for you to intuitively um intuitively nourish yourself which is just such a bummer um and again it can take work to get back to a place where you can intuitively nourish yourself it doesn't just come naturally once you've been through the ringer with all the noise and the dot different diets and different expert opinions and black and white yes and no style of eating so yeah i mean that's i think it's always a good idea to sort of assess your relationship with food it's something i try to gather early on working with clients too because again if there is a really big real some really big hang-ups trying to bust through those early on really helps expedite pro expedite progress um so yeah it's tricky though when you have a history of more disordered eating for sure well and you know what she made a good point in this class today too because we were talking about um like all of these concepts and we were talking about how if you make your nourishment choices from a place of lack and you know i'm somehow broken the food is bad the food is evil if you if you if you make your decisions from that headspace you're going to fail 90% of the time right like that's that's not a sustainable model to live your life you're it's going to be exhausting and you're just going to give up at some point but then you hear the statistic that like diets fail 80% of the time well yeah i think it's because, even more than that i feel like it's like 90% of the time yeah but it's it's probably because the vast majority of people who do a diet, I don't care if it's AIP or keto or Weight Watchers or whatever, 90% of the time they're making the decision out of this like, my body's broken, my immune system sucks, I can't believe I gave myself autoimmunity, I'm overweight, I need to be skinny, I need to... It's this lack mindset and it's this, this shit mindset that corrupts us in the end, but then you hear these these stories of like, oh, well, I self sabotage. And I've had x, y, and z issue. It's like, well, you're not self sabotaging, not intentionally. It's just that the things I, that you're doing are big band aids that you're not getting deeper to, like, mm. how you develop this relationship with food, we're going to have the instructor on the podcast in the yeah. next handful of episodes, I already asked her, and she said, yes, she would come on. But um, it's been really eye opening, but I just thought that that was such a beautiful correlation between the vagus nerve motility kind of world versus yeah. the relationship with food and body All awareness. These systems are connected in so many ways. In some way. Um, in some way. <clears throat> yeah, it kind of reminds me too of uh, which I know we'll we'll have her on, which will be great. But just if you're operating on a diet that's out of that's rooted in some sort of really deep core fear. It, it oftentimes affects your rational decision-making in a lot of ways too, or your ability, like you said, to, to feel what works best for your body or feel when something's off. Like, again, I even think in my case, you know, there were so many indicators that 
certain diets were not right for me, but you just keep going. And, you know, he's yeah. just like, you got to stay the course because yeah, you're you afraid. You had your blinders on. You weren't right. going to listen. So, again, I, I mean, a lot of a lot of my clients that have more extensive disordered eating or are really freaked out of carbs or something like that, again, there might be, again, tr totally true some reactions that are going on that could be scary. So I'm not trying to downplay that. But, um, you know, I think there's a degree of... Um, you know, when they're, you're operating out of some deeper fear, it can be harder to overcome. Um, but yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky business. It's tricky business. That's that's it. We're renaming the podcast. We're just going to call it. It's tricky business. It's tricky business. Tricky business. Tr tricky um, business with Nick and Aim. That's that's right. Um, we got to shorten I... it for our tricky business. Oh, okay. Shorten sure. our names. You sure. know, it's like it's like our. What do you call it? Um, alter egos. Okay. Nick yeah. and Aim are alter egos. Well, can I tell you about my other? Well, okay. So this, so this would be the alter ego to the thing I'm going to tell you about next. You're already aware, but this is for the people I share this. Um, and that I have just one more comment about the carb thing to close this out for, for mm. the episode. Um, I'm going to brag to the good people at home. I am the proud winner of the top banana award. Ooh. Can you admire how like crappily they cut this out, <laughs> by the way? Do you, do you see? Oh my God, I do see it. How it's, badly. I'll it's, try to paint the picture. It looks like a five-year-old cut a circle. Yes. Thank you. Um, Very that poorly. That says top banana and put it into a metal um, for so all yes, the people that are not on YouTube. That's, I, I was at a conference over the weekend and there was a, uh, superhero themed costume contest one evening at the soiree and I was decked out head to toe with a wig with my Sailor Moon Halloween costume mm. and I kicked butt and then I was awarded the top banana award I do not know what the top banana award means I have I have thought about this long and hard uh, they kind of communicated it as the most fun costume but I'm very perplexed by top banana as a label but i just wanted to You're brag about banana. that i am i'm top banana so <sighs> rebel in that everyone um, um i had yeah. one more thought about carbs though i have and one more thought as well but you you first i i'll remember mine will you are you at risk of forgetting yours do you want to go first i can just go i can go um so my only thought was that if you're struggling to tolerate carbs gut wise, but you do feel like you feel better overall, which I've definitely seen too. Um, so like maybe you're sleeping better or you just feel better energy. You feel better in general, but you're still getting a decent amount of bloating with carbs. Um, I will say again, sometimes digestive support can really help with tolerance to carbs as well. Like maybe you do need to just like throw in some amylase or like pancreatic enzymes or something to help with tolerance to more carbs. Again, I have seen that help there, in the, right, in the transitional right? period of time just to help with tolerance. So that's something to consider as well. If you feel like you've tried for a period of time and you're just struggling to adapt, um, I would try uh, maybe some extra digestive aids uh, just to see how you're, gonna, how you're doing. That's a valid point. And just, again, going kind of slow and yeah. not not overwhelming your body and your microbiome with too much all at once. I think those are probably the two biggest like therapeutic tips we could give you. And you, 
inadvertently touched on the exact thing that I was going to say. We talked about the people who would benefit from this episode and benefit from introducing more carbs. And we said hormone stuff, particularly for women and like cycles and fertility and that sort of stuff. We mentioned low thyroid function, particularly low T3. Uh, You mentioned a couple of times people who are more physically active and they need more carbs because they're really physically active and they work out a lot. Um, You also brought up just a group of people where you think that your carbs are okay, but you still just kind of feel like crap. Mm. Maybe, maybe that group would feel better with more carbs, even if they don't realize it. But another group of people I think that would have benefited from this episode, of course, I mentioned at the end, is people whose sleep kind of sucks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think also we could make the conversation for depression even, mm. and maybe even like anxiety and mental health struggles in general, because you need carbs to make serotonin. Mm. You need, well, you need the carbs to shuttle the precursors for serotonin across the blood brain barrier in particular. Mm. So if you are too low carb, you could actually be making yourself depressed or you could be not, that just sounds so flippant. I don't mean that to be dismissive of true clinical depression, but you know, like you might be a little bummed because you don't have serotonin and you might find that your sleep sucks because you're not making serotonin, which is the precursor for melatonin. So that is something I've heard before, where even people who just add some carbs to their dinner. Oh, yeah, for sure. Get much better quality sleep. Yeah, I 100% agree. I definitely would slate more carbs in the evening if you are struggling with sleep to fill up the glycogen stores before bed as well. I I, am the only other comment that I have too, that I don't want to forget before we hop off is just putting into perspective too that people have skewed reference ranges. So if you've been in the gut health space or just the health space for a while, you know, 150 grams of carbs might seem like a ton, you know, if you've been like in keto for a while, but that is like well beyond the normal for the American diet. So just understanding like reference points too. some people think that you're eating this insanely high carb diet at like 200 grams of carbs a day where that would be on the low end of like maybe a normal American diet that would be like low carb for a normal American. So well, and I'm just I'm even glancing at my chronometer the last couple of days to throw. So yesterday I did 177. The prior day was two, 223. Hmm. The prior day was 180. So I ping pong a little bit. The prior day was 164, 185. So I'm kind of hovering in that moderate carb range, mm-hmm. like low to moderate, where I might go all the way down to 150 on a certain day, but I might go up to like 250 on a day. And I kind of just ping pong right. around and I don't know, I eat what I want. Well, and that's how it should be. Again, like I don't think someone needs to be like exactly at 150 a day or something. But again, some people know at some point, oh, on days I work out, I might want to be on the higher end of my carb intake, maybe closer to like the 200 to 250 gram range versus when I am not working out, maybe I don't feel like I need as much. Um, So I won't eat quite as much carbs and overall calories maybe in general. But yeah, I mean, I, all this stuff just takes a degree of nuance and just um, experiment, learn, experiment, yeah, experiment, 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 experiment. Give yourself some time to transition um, 
through some of the some of the introduction of carbs but once you get to that point once you get over the hump um it can usually be really beneficial uh to bump up carbs for a lot of people now again like there's the the nuance of some people that might have to be a little bit careful with carbs but again in general i think i would push push forward a little bit if you're not feeling super great right now and are eating a little bit low carb um and have, are, have some of the characteristics of what we what you mentioned. I think you highlighted what we've talked about nicely in terms of who might benefit. Um, yeah. Again, yeah. better at the end of the episode than never, I suppose. But yeah, you know, it's um, funny. I um, I had a, a discovery call with someone who he made me laugh. He was basically saying like, "Oh, I love your podcast." He was saying, "I love your rabbit holes." He said, I love when you guys go down rabbit holes and then are like, oh, my God, we like need to get back to the topic. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that someone likes those because I feel like some people might think that we're insane. Well, uh, you know, we're a little. I, I'm sure we have had some interesting comments on uh, YouTube and the reviews, but largely, Excellent. largely, I think our people have found us and they continue to find us. And I'm grateful for that. Um, speaking of which, I haven't asked this in a while. Guys, if you haven't left this podcast a review on Apple Podcasts, we would be just delighted if you would do so, preferably five stars, obviously. If you're on the fence of whether or not to leave us a one star, then feel no need to do so. Right. But, um, but that does help us rank higher and it helps people find us. Also, if you're on YouTube right now, if you can like and comment and subscribe and do all of that stuff, that really, really helps us you know, reach more people, get this message out to the people who need it the most. Uh, we don't advertise the podcast. We just post it and hope that it goes to the right people at the right time. Right. So if you can help us out with that, that would be so, so wonderful. So thank you in advance for anybody who would be willing to do one of those things. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think that's largely a wrap. I have one more small nugget to say. Do it. You were You were talking about needing carbs to make acetylcholine. And then we know that we need choline to make acetylcholine. So to me, what I heard is eggs and toast Mm. is about the best breakfast you can have. For motility. Yeah. Eat the eggs and toast for your motility, guys. That's that's how we're going to close this one out. Yeah. Until next time. Also, side note, Amy, you look naked right now because you're wearing a tank top and your hair is covering the straps of the tank top. I, let's just say, I am naked. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Um, oh, just kidding. Here, yeah, I just, I had to go. mention that um, as we close out here. But yes, we from, both wore tank tops today. We did. Well, it's hot, you know, so. It's true. We're, we're seasonally dressed. But guys, until next time, we are closing out. This has been Naked Amy and Your Top Banana. We will see you in the next episode.